want to begin with a fairy tale. People of all ages love fairy tales. We're raised on them pretty much. Some people are raised in Cinderella, some on Beauty and the Beast, but more and more kids are being raised on Frozen. Nothing compared to Cinderella, nothing. But uh, the writer, Frederick Buckner, believes that the gospel is the greatest fairy tale of all. He set up a, with one difference, one major difference. The gospel is true. It's true. That it not only happened once upon a time, but has kept on happening ever since and is happening still. I once heard a person put the gospel to fairy tale. I forget who it was, but I remember it because fairy tales, they stick in your brain and they're so vivid you don't forget them. And so I tweaked it a little bit and I'm calling this the prince and the peasant girl. And of course it starts like this, once upon a time. Once upon a time, there lived a noble prince. Not only was he exceedingly rich, living in a giant castle on top of the hill. Not only did he own all he surveyed, but he was also unusually kind. Every Monday of every week, he'd take some of his servants and go down to the local village with a huge bag of gold and all kind of goods to help those who were in need. He would bring flour for the baker to make more of his delicious bread. He'd bring new linens and rolls of Italian silk for the seamstresses and tailors. And he would even haul a wagon full of cows and chickens to the local butcher so people could have food. People loved the prince. On one cold winter morning, he was riding into town. He saw a young girl in old tattered clothes slip down a dark alley, avoiding his gaze. As he called to her, one of the local merchants told the prince, Ah, have nothing to do with that girl. She is both a dirty thief and a defiled lady of the night. It is whispered that she has bedded some of the married men in town. But she is also known to have stolen silver spoons and strings of pearls from their houses and slip out late at night. So my dear prince, stay away from her. She's no good at all. But instead of staying away, the prince's heart was touched by her sad plight. Wrapping his large, warm cloak around his shoulders, he headed down into the darkness of shadows in the poor parts of the village. After looking around corners and rat-infested alleyways, he spotted a girl, stooped and shivering behind an old wooden barrel. Why are you following me? Leave me alone, snapped the frightened girl. I want to help you. How can you help someone like me? You probably heard the gossip and rumors. No one wants me around. I am no good. The prince came closer to the cowering girl, and noticing her moth-eaten dress and torn scarf, he placed his heavy, thick cloak over her shoulders, and he said, I want you to come work for me. Up in a castle, I need a new maid. Stunned at what she heard, the peasant girl gave no reply. Gently reaching toward her, he said, Come, take my hand. We'll get you some hot food, new clothes, and your own room. You will work for me and my father, the king. He is always looking for good help. Without answering, the girl with her arms still folded tight followed him to the carriage and rode back to the castle in a state of disbelief. 
The prince was true to his word, getting her settled into a small, cozy corner of the basement. She was outfitted with a crisp, clean maid's uniform, and she was allowed to eat all the extra kitchen food to her heart's content. For the first few weeks, the young girl did her work quietly and diligently, dusting, cleaning curtains, brushing couches, and bringing trays of food to the kind prince. How are you being treated, he asked. Fine, sir, just fine, but far too good and better than I deserve. And out of a feeling of shame and embarrassment, she would say no more and quickly scamper away to do more chores. One day, as she was bringing some dirty dishes back to the kitchen, she heard two cooks talking. Why would the prince bring such a brazen whore into his home? Does he not know the rumors? Has he not considered her stories? I will bet she's waiting for some dark moment to seal some of his precious gold. She will rob him blind. Dropping the plate of dishes, the girl bolted out the back door and fled down the hill to the village. As the two cooks heard the crash of broken china on the tiled kitchen floor, they said to each other with satisfied smiles, well, good riddance as she goes back to her life of filth. They closed the door and bolted it tight. Three days later, the prince noticed that the girl was gone. Heading down to the kitchen, he asked some of the staff, where's the peasant girl? I haven't seen her for a few days. Is she sick? No, my lord, apparently she wanted to go back to her life of debauchery and sin. You are too good a man to have someone like her working here. I'm sorry she deceived you, my lord. Running to the stable, the prince mounted his favorite white riding horse and charged back to the village to find her, going from house to house and store to store. He asked the people of the town if they'd seen her and know where the girl could be. Ah, try the broken down inn at the edge of town said a toothless old granny through a half-open door. That's where sailors are known to spend a copper coin or two on cheap beer and loose women. She might be there, riding up to a dilapidated building with old piano music playing and the smell of stale tobacco and gin hanging in the air. The prince hitched his horse to a post and entered the front door. Slowly looking around, he noticed the girl sitting alone, sobbing silently to herself. When she saw the prince walking toward her, she wiped flowing tears from her eyes, sat stiff in her chair, arms folded tight. What do you want? She coldly muttered. I want you to come back with me to the castle, said the prince. But the other workers hate me. I will always be what I am, a sinful lost soul. As much as I want to try to start a new life, my past always reminds me of what I am. Trash. Sitting down next to the broken girl, the prince grabbed her small hand and said, I want you to come back with me, not to be my maid, but my wife. I don't want you to simply be someone who cleans the dust and scrubs the floors. I want you to be my very own. With wide-eyed bewilderment, the girl took a deep breath and had said in sobbing exasperation, but everyone hates me. I will always and forever be seen as a brazen whore. Not to me, said the prince. I want you for my wife. I want you to live your new life 
as you now are, as my queen. Let's stop the story there. It's crazy. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? Like ludicrous. This is absolutely implausible. This is outlandish. It's a fairy tale. No, it's not. It's our story. It's our story. It really is. And if you don't believe me, I'd like you to stand, open up for 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to read 9 through 11, and the title of this is Live As You Are, and it's going to be WSJ. You'll understand it. Not Wall Street Journal, but you'll understand in a minute. The title is Live As You Are, starting in verse 9. And listen close. Verse 9, do you not know, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 11. And such were, such were some of you, but you were washed, sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is a fairy tale, but it's true. You may be seated as we continue on. I want us to stop on verse 11. That's really, verse 11 is the heart of this passage. Sort of like the heart in your body, it gives blood to the whole rest of the chapter. Even though it's in the center, if you don't understand this, you won't understand the rest of the chapter. So we have to take our time to really get it. Because sometimes I think we read the Bible like, this is a nice, it's a nice book, I'm supposed to read it, but we don't say, this is me. This is me. And the, you notice every word, washed, sanctified, justified, is in what tense? Past tense. That means that's who we are. It's done. We've been washed. We've been sanctified. We have been justified. It's done. It's finished. That's who we are right now. So let's look at it. We are washed. This word means to bathe, to remove the dirt. It's what my wife always tries to get me to do, take a shower. It's to get clean. And she will not deny that. In Acts 22.16, this word is used for the idea of having your sins completely washed away as far as the east is from the west. I am literally plucked out of the dirty world around me and I'm washed brand new. Theological terms, this is called regeneration. Inside of me, I'm a new being. The old is gone, the new is here. So literally, when I believe in Christ, I become clean, washed, a pristine soul. The word sanctified is a very interesting term. It means that we're not just washed, but we are made holy. So we're taken out of the world, and now we're placed in a position where God wants to use me for his glory, and he places me in his own body, the church. I become a holy one a crowned, splendorous person for him. Peter says it like this in his epistle, you are a spiritual house. 
a holy priesthood. And then the third word is justified. I love this. This is probably my favorite theological term. It means that because I've been washed, because I've been made holy, God declares me righteous. He sees me and he says, Chris has arrived. He's done. I'm positionally seated at his right hand. I'm justified, declared righteous. So the reality of faith in Christ, once I believe, this is why evangelism is so important, when somebody really believes the gospel, the life of Christ comes in. It's called imputation. I literally am connected to Jesus himself through the Spirit. I am his, and he is mine, body, soul, and spirit. It's unbelievable. You know what it says in 1 John 5.12? Whoever has the Son has life. And because I have life in him, I'm declared righteous because the Spirit of God is alive in me. Jesus said, if you believe in me, this is John 4.14, if you believe in me, streams of living water will start flowing into eternal life. Linda, isn't that crazy? I mean, honestly, it's crazy. It's a fairy tale. But it's true. If you believe the Bible, that is. You have to believe the Bible. So, WSJ, wash, sanctified, justified. I become a clean, holy child of the king who lives on top of the hill in heaven. I'm his. It is crazy. And because of that, Paul writes chapter 6, and he wants us to say, therefore, because this is true, live as you are. Live as you are. Live different. Don't become the peasant girl and go back to the village and go back to that dilapidated inn. Live in a castle. I want to show you how, how adamant Paul is about this. He uses one phrase in verse 3, twice in verse 9, verse 15, verse 16, and verse 19. And the phrase is this. Do you not know? Like, it's kind of like, wake up! Do you not know who you are? You're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified. And so what he's going to do in chapter 6 is he's going to give the practical implications of the reality of WSJ. So, you could say it like this, since you are washed, since it's past tense and it's true, since you are washed, stay out of the mud. Look at verse 9 through 11 again. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. As such, some of you were. So the implication is, this is who you were, so don't do it anymore. Stay out of the mud. And he's very clear. This type of behavior, if you continue in it, it reveals that probably you are not redeemed. This isn't not a hypothetical situation. This is, if this characterizes you, be careful. Listen to what Gordon Fee says. Paul wants to warn the Corinthians that if they persist in the same evil as the unrighteous around them, they are in the same danger of 
not inheriting the kingdom of heaven. The warning here is real. The wicked will not inherit. And so he describes the behaviors. And the list is pretty clear. Sexually immoral. Last week we talked about the porneia. That's anything outside the married covenant. Sexually is sin. Idolatrous, worshiping anybody else other than Christ. Adulterers, having a relationship with somebody that's married. Men who practice homosexuality. In the Greek, there's two words that are used here. One is talking about the effeminate partner, usually the younger one who's being used like a male prostitute, who's doing it willingly. And one is the older man that's initiating boys for sexual pleasure. That's what that's talking about. Thieves, people who steal what's not theirs. Greedy, those who identify themselves by money and love it and love it. Drunks, revilers, that's a person who uses hostile speech to denigrate and destroy others. And swindlers, people who rip people off. That's really what's going to happen in 1 through 8. We'll see that in a second. This is the mud of the world, and Paul says, stay out of it. That's what he's saying. It's pretty clear. Peter writes, says this to those who love the mud, be wary of the person, and I have it up there, Peter 2, 20 to 22, be wary of the person who after they escape the defilement of the world through a knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are again entangled and overcome, and the last state has become worse for them than the first. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So beware, that's the point. So since we are sanctified, since we are made holy, a person who's been placed in this new community of saints, Paul wants the Corinthians to value their membership. We are part of the holy ones, the holy council of God. It's, it's utterly stunning what we're part of. I'll show you how stunning it is. Look at verse 2 and 3. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That means we are going to be in charge over judging the world. What? Yeah. Jesus even says it like this. If you're good in the small things, I'll give you a few cities to be in charge of. One guy who had ten talents, he used those ten talents. Jesus says, because you're faithful in that ten, I'm going to give you ten cities to rule. Look at verse 3. This is, this is mind-blowing. This, this is bigger than a fairy tale. Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? So you and I are going to judge Satan. Other angels. That's the point. We're going to be in, we are the holy ones. And what was happening apparently in this church, something bad was happening in the church, a bad business deal. Somebody probably swindled somebody else. And so in verse 1, look what Paul says. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Don't, go, don't take issues outside because let's deal with it in-house. Why? Verse 5. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers... 
because the implication is we are part of the saints. We are part of the holy ones. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? So in other words, he said, quit worrying about the small things. Let's worry about the big things. When you were a kid, there was a cartoon. One of my favorite cartoons as a kid was, do you ever remember the Super Friends with Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman went to the Hall of Justice, and they'd take care of the big issues while normal people took care of the small issues? We're sort of like that. C.S. Lewis says, if you can see what you're going to look like in heaven right now, you would almost want to worship yourself. So, with that in mind, who cares about small things? Who cares if we're defrauded some bucks here on earth? Why do we make such a big deal about masks either way? Don't we have bigger things to worry about, like the gospel? That's like the big thing. Since you are justified, a person united to Christ by faith, both body, mind, and spirit, because the Spirit of God lives in me, we should not be unequally yoked, unequally yoked with unbelievers in body, mind, and spirit. Because what was happening in this passage is some of the people in the church were going to the local brothels and prostitute houses and saying, no big deal. Look at verse 12 and 13. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Meaning, since I live by grace, I'm free, but I'm not going to be dominated by things. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. So here's what's going on. Some of the Christians thought because they lived under grace, it was permissible for them to do whatever they want in their bodies. Because really the spirit's all that matters. That's all that really matters. This body's just nature. So I can eat as much as I want and I can sleep with whoever I want. We actually have taken it a step further in our culture. We now can be whatever gender we want and we can actually manipulate our body to be at whatever sex we want. Because this is malleable clay. It doesn't matter. But Paul disagrees sharply. Look at again at the end of verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. The word meant. Look at the word meant there. The body is not meant. That word meant means there is a purpose and design for this clay that we have. There's purpose. There's design. What was God's intention? I like to put it like this. First of all, since God designed the body, he took, he took dust and he breathed into it the breath of life. Don't you think he's the one that we should go to to ask his opinion on what is the purpose of this body? But we don't ask his opinion anymore because it doesn't matter. But if we did, I would call this the theology of human sexuality. I'd like to say, God, what is the purpose of this body? And in this passage, he gives us very clear, three very clear definitive purposes of our body sexually. Number one, it's this. My body is meant to be raised from the dead. 
I'm meant for eternal life. Look at verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us, meaning our body, referred to back 13. He will raise us up by his power. So you could say it like this. Your body, my body, is not some haphazard menagerie of cells. It is beautifully and wonderfully made in his image. It's amazing. I am destined for eternity, not destruction. So don't think your body is this irrelevant, moldable piece of clay. It's not a toy. It's not a toy. One theologian writes, in most Western cultures where sexual mores have blatantly moved past toward pagan standards, the doctrine of the sanctity of the body needs to be heard anew within the church. Sexual immorality is still a sin. Even though it has been justified under every conceivable rationalization, those who take Scripture seriously, he writes, are not prudes, they're not legalists. Rather, they recognize God has purchased us for higher things. And you know what our higher thing is? Resurrection, living as saints in eternity. God made me the way he wants me to be for his eternal honor. Second thing we can say is this, my body is the Lord's. My body's God's. He owns me. I'm owned by Christ. I'm his property. Look at the end of verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Why? Because of verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? We're justified and we're united to him by his spirit, so we're his members. Shall I then take a member of Christ, members of Christ, and make them members of a prostitute? Never. I am one with Jesus in spirit, and he says, and as a result, I should start thinking through the implications of this, 16 and 17. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And then 18, so flee from sexual immorality. Because... Every other sin is committed outside, but sexual morality is against his own body because we are united with Christ. How can we be united to an unbeliever sexually? That's the question. Gordon Fee says, it's unthinkable that one should take away the limbs that belong to Christ and unite those same limbs with a prostitute's body. It's not sexual union that's incompatible with union to Christ. It's having such a union with a prostitute. Because union in the marriage is still oneness with Christ because the married couple is one in Christ. Not so with an unbeliever. The third reason is because my body is the temple of God. He lives in me. He lives in me. Look at verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. So justification means when I believe in Jesus, by faith, he lives in me, and now he dwells in me through the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. So because of that, treat this body as such. It is not your toy to play with and experiment with. It is 
God's home. And he's jealous about those things he owns. Your body included. So let's go back to the original fairy tale. Do you remember how it ended? Here is where we left off. Here's where we left off. The prince said, I want you for my wife. I want you for my wife. I want you to live your new life as you now are as my queen. That's where we ended. And here's how it continues. Pulling out a large golden crested ring, he said this, Once I place this ring upon your finger, no one will ever be permitted to soil your name ever again because you're mine. Will you marry me? When a girl saw the priceless ring that was being offered, she knew, she knew at that moment she could trust him. And she was ready to give her life to the prince forever. So that's where it ends. It says the end. Now the question is, that's a fairy tale, but what about ours? Is there some, is there some kind of ring that proves his devotion to us? Is there some kind of symbol that shows how much he wants us. Look at the very last verse of that chapter. You were bought with a price. 